Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD bodybuilder, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today, I'm joined by Bill Campbell, who is a professor of exercise science and director of the Performance and Physique Enhancement Laboratory at the University of South Florida. Today, we're going to be talking about rapid fat loss, metabolic adaptation, and refeeds and diet breaks. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I've seen your your prior guests, so I'm very honored to, to be in the same, thought of in the same way. So thank you. Yes, only the best on this show. So today we're going to be talking about a few nuanced topics that I think a lot of bodybuilders are going to enjoy listening to. So yeah, starting off about rapid fat loss, I was, I wanted to ask you just sort of your thoughts on a few parameters on, you know, how people should approach this in terms of someone comes to you and says, I want to lose fat as quickly as possible. Yeah, and let me start by just giving a little bit of context to the audience that my research seeks to serve. Mm-hmm. So we, you have two ends of the spectrum. On one end, you would have an obese sedentary person. And on the other end of the spectrum, you'd have a competitive bodybuilder who steps on stage and is highly active. I am much more closely, my, my research serves the, the closer to the competitive bodybuilder, mm-hmm. but I would say it's, it's more tailored to somebody who's a fitness enthusiast, who lives a bodybuilding lifestyle, but who doesn't necessarily step on stage. So I want to make right. that, that, that kind of clear because my research uses those types of subjects. So while it's not bodybuilders per se, it is the closest thing, and I'm sure you can attest to this, my research is the closest thing that you're going to get to a bodybuilding population. There's a reason why you don't see any studies, or if you do, it's one every four years with bodybuilders, and that's because bodybuilders are not willing to give up control of their diet and their training. Well, hell no. (laughs) Exactly. And I've tried for years and I have great networking in the industry. So again, um, bodybuilders, you're just not going to see the study. So I think if you are a competitive bodybuilder, the data that I present and what we're going to talk about today is the closest thing that you're going to have in a research publication. So, and then now that I got that out of the way, what was your question again? Yeah. So a few tips on setting up uh, one's diet for rapid fat loss. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the, the first thing that I like to discuss, let's just say with a potential client or if if I'm, if I'm consulting with, um, physique coaches who then have their own clientele Mm -hmm. is having the person realize that they're in a fat loss phase and that they need to embrace that phase. A lot of people, they kind of, yeah, I want to lose fat, but then they they kind of tiptoe and they don't really go all in on mm. losing body fat. And they're, I, I understand because you want to maintain your muscle mass, but there's a time to build muscle mass. And then when you decide it's time to lose body fat, let's do the things that will strip off body fat. Now, everything we're going to talk about today, our studies, the study designs, the evidence are going to lead us to maintaining muscle mass, maintaining metabolic rate. But the first thing is, if you want to be in a fat loss phase, be in a fat loss phase. Don't, don't shortchange that process because you're going to be hungry. And then you're going to, you know, you might do some things to offset that. So that would be the first global thing. We're going to embrace a fat loss phase. Now, if, if your question was a rapid fat loss phase, 
I need to be honest and say up until last year, I didn't think that rapid fat loss phases were ideal and they may not be ideal, but I would say, I would have said, avoid them. Don't do this. Take a long-term perspective, do this over time. And that is still my base position, but because we did some research on this and essentially my research challenged my beliefs. I now say, if you do a rapid fat loss, as long as you implement these certain pillars or these certain strategies, you can do so in a way that is very effective, meaning that almost all of the weight loss is coming from body fat loss, and you maintain nearly all of lean body mass and metabolic rate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's cool to hear that uh, your thoughts have been shaped by your own research, which is, I guess, that's what, what that's what we want, you know, as scientists in the field. So yeah, yeah in terms of, I guess, a few, you know, the, the pillars, what would they be? I, um, the first one is, is ubiquitous across all diets. And again, I'm going to tell your bodybuilder listeners something that they already know. So I'm not teaching them anything, but let me say it anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, a high protein diet, when in a caloric deficit, higher protein diets are the, the key to maintaining muscle mass. And what a lot of people don't appreciate is they actually, a higher protein diet, there's evidence to suggest that there is greater fat loss that happens with a high protein diet when in a mm -hmm. caloric deficit. Um, it's clearly true with an obese population. And we have a handful of studies in lean people that, that are in a dieting phase. And there's a few studies, again, we don't have much research in this area, but a few of these studies would suggest that higher protein actually, even when calories are equated, you'll have greater fat loss. The other, the other strategy is to make sure that your resistance training, again, that's what defines a bodybuilder, of course, that are going to resistance train. But you, you, you can appreciate the, um, the broader fitness culture has no clue. They just They don't even know that resistance training, the impact that it will have on the body. Now to the third area, which is where I've, I've evolved in my thinking on rapid fat loss diets, is they need to be short term. So my lab did this study last year. We finished this study last year. It's not published yet. We did present it at a um, academic conference, but we did a four week, essentially a two week rapid fat loss diet. And I'm, I'm just going to give some summary data on this study. Mm -hmm. It was approximately a 40% caloric deficit over two weeks. And there were some nuances to that. But 40% almost over two weeks, very high protein, a gram per pound or 2.2 grams per kg of body weight. Obviously, resistance training was a part of this. And what we found was in resistance trained males and females, when they did this pretty aggressive caloric deficit, for two weeks, nearly all of the weight lost, and I'm talking like high 90% was from fat. We maintained nearly all of fat, dry fat-free mass. We actually had to, uh, we also test body water in my lab. So we accounted for that. Nice. And we did have a little bump in the first two weeks in resting metabolic rate. So metabolism did slow down, but that was recovered in the next two weeks when subjects increased their calories a little bit. So in summary, if you are planning a rapid fat loss phase, I would say go for it. High protein, resistance training intensity remains high and get in and get out. 
don't be there for four weeks, five weeks, six weeks at a time. I think if you are to be in it for an extended period of time, you're, you're going to lose um, fat-free mass or, or let's just say muscle mass. Now on that note, does that mean it's gone forever? No, you get, you tend to gain that back fairly quickly when the diet's over, but we have a direct relationship between that and metabolic rate. So it will also help keep body fat levels low. And the other thing is if you lose it, now you do have to spend, I don't know, months after getting it back. So if you can never lose it to begin with, you're going to be that much better off. Finally, one other, one other thought with this. The, there's limited research in these extreme, or, or let's just say aggressive caloric deficits in lean people. But in the few research studies that we have, and one of them was the Minnesota starvation experiment, what, the, what, what subsequent reanalysis of this data have hypothesized is that when you're aggressive in your dieting and you lose muscle mass, mm -hmm. when the diet is over, it tends to induce a hyperphagia response where you just have this uncontrollable hunger mm -hmm. or a very high drive to eat. And that feeling of obsessive hunger results in the gaining of additional body fat such that they're gaining more fat than what they started the diet with. Mm. And the hypothesis is that they keep gaining body fat until they recover the muscle mass that they lost during the diet. Hmm. So there's yet another piece of evidence to suggest that if you can maintain muscle mass, it'll help control hunger and prevent this phenomenon known as fat overshoot, where you gain more body fat than what you started the diet with. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's, I wouldn't have expected that necessarily. So it's cool to hear. Um, yeah, in terms of what you said about keeping the phases short, let's say you have a client who comes to you and wants to lose a large amount of weight. How would you kind of go bro, like approach this? Would you break them up into multiple diets? Well, let, let me get one clarifying question. Is this a competitive bodybuilder who wants to step on stage or is this somebody who just has a lot of fat to lose and, and they're active, but they don't have a competition? Yeah, I guess someone who's more competitive. Okay. So if they have a lot to lose, yes, in, an, in a perfect world, I want to maintain muscle mass. So yeah, I would, I would likely, I would have different phases. So we're going to have a fat loss phase, then we're going to go into maintenance for a while, almost like a diet break lifestyle over mm -hmm. time. That would, that would be uh, my, my primary approach. Now, again, as, as you know, how is the person responding to the plan, depending on how they're responding, our initial plan might be a lot different than how we end up. But my first conversation would be, hey, let's make sure we take the time to do this. And that's been the biggest change in the, the, the body, at least the natural bodybuilding field in the last 15 years, or I'd say even last 10 years, people take their time now. Um, I'm, I used to bodybuild when I was younger and everything was a much shorter contest preparation. So I'd love to see this a little bit more emphasis on health, a little bit more emphasis on a gradual approach. And diet breaks almost, they just fit into that ent entire paradigm very well. It almost forces you to elongate the fat loss phase. So in, in summary, yeah, I would, I would plan for multiple diet breaks and encourage the client, let's take this slowly. And I think, and, and convince them that in my professional opinion, they'll have a better product, a better body at the end of this than if we go fast. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And it's definitely something that the, the field is trending towards now is uh, slower rates of loss and trying to preserve your muscle mass. Moving on, yeah, that segues nicely into our discussion of, you know, uh, metabolic adaptation and these other various techniques like diet breaks. Could you explain to the audience what metabolic adaptation is? Yeah, I'm, I'll define it in, in the sense of just two things. Your, your metabolic rate, and let's just look at resting metabolic rate, because that's mm -hmm. the easiest one to measure. Um, you can look at overall total energy expenditure, but that, that gets very difficult to measure scientifically. So resting metabolic rate is a very good proxy for total energy expenditure. So if you can, if you can measure resting metabolic rate and you have somebody's body weight, you can kind of get an idea of metabolic adaptation. So if somebody loses weight, and I'll say this, let's say they lose 10 units of body weight, mm -hmm. we would expect their resting energy expenditure to also decrease. Let's say it would decrease by 10 units as well. So as body weight goes down, resting energy expenditure would go down. Mm -hmm. Same thing's in the reverse. If you gain body weight, your resting energy expenditure would also be anticipated to increase. But where we have metabolic adaptation is where, and let's look at this from a weight loss perspective. If somebody mm -hmm. loses 10 units of weight, again, under normal circumstances, we would expect resting energy expenditure to decrease by 10 units because there's a smaller body, perfectly normal. But what happens with metabolic adaptation is 10 units of weight loss and we measure resting energy expenditure and we have 15 units of resting energy expenditure loss. Hmm. So we have a greater decrease in metabolic rate than what is explained by a simple loss of total body weight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's definitely something that all contests, you know, athletes and bodybuilders probably recognize when they start losing fat is the fat's not coming off as you'd expect as calories come down. Yes. And then something else to consider if anybody is getting their resting energy expenditures measured, there's two things that will cause that to lower. And especially if you're going to live, be living in this rapid fat loss world, um, just decreasing calories, your energy flux will decrease resting metabolic rate that tends to be a little bit more acute. So you see that within the first few weeks. And then also the chronic response is that it follows body weight. So if you're losing body weight, even body fat, um, it will go down to some extent. If you're losing, let me just say, if you're losing a lot of body fat, if, you're, if your body weight's getting a lot lower. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then that kind of triggers the, the topics of you know refeeds and diet breaks that some people have been trying to use. Um, what are your current thoughts on the use of diet breaks and the research right now? Yeah, I'll meant, let me just give my, um, just so we're all on the same page. Let me mention what a diet break yeah, is for sure. Uh, I think that a good umbrella term is to use something called nonlinear dieting. So that's kind of this overarching definition. Traditionally, when people would go on a diet, what they do is they just reduce their calories and they'll do that for eight weeks, 12 weeks, five months, six months. They never, they're never not in a caloric deficit. So it's a continual energy deficit. Mm -hmm. Nonlinear dieting can, can be uh, one of these more uh, popular approaches is referred to as a diet break. And a diet break is typically defined as at least seven days, sometimes two weeks, sometimes even more, but typically it's measured in weeks. 
and a a week or two or more of bringing calories out of a deficit and according to the research back to maintenance calories mm-hmm. that's how we're going to define a diet break so it's literally a break from the diet but it's not a free for all so you're not you know you're not gorging you're not you're not engaging in a food orgy you're going <laughs> back to maintenance calorie levels. So what you were doing before the diet started, at least that's what the research has done. And the theory is in my lab, um, just got a paper accepted on a diet break study. We just did this in resistance trained females. Mm. Um, One of your prior guests, Menno Henselmans, he was um, one of our uh, colleagues in this study. He helped um, fund the study. Um, He helped design it as well. So with, with that study, this was in resistance trained females, we took a one week break from the diet. And you mentioned metabolic adaptation. The research on diet breaks um, basically has two outcomes. They either help or they don't hurt. So there's never a harm. And in some cases, diet break studies will cause greater retention of muscle mass or even greater fat loss. So they're always, they always help, or at least they don't hurt. Uh, now, we are assuming that they are going to extend the time of a diet. So if, if you're going to say that's a negative, well, then we have to accommodate that because it is a, that is a fact. Diet breaks will extend the time it takes to generally lose additional body fat. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, if you're going to use a diet break, uh, at least in my experience in, or my analysis of this literature is they're only val- they're only going to have utility if the diet itself is causing negative adaptations or like a metabolic adaptation like we discussed. Mm-hmm. So uh, as an example, in the last year, there was a study, uh, Dr. Jackson Pales published a study on diet breaks in athletes. My lab is about to publish our study. And both of our diet break studies were very similar, both in resistance trained athletes. And both of us did not report any benefit to the diet breaks. Uh, There was no greater retention of of, uh, lean body mass. There wasn't a greater loss of body fat. There was no better maintenance of resting energy expenditure. So you would think, well, yeah, they don't work. Well, I, I would, I would, caution before I would jump to that conclusion. And that, I mean, you can conclude that, but in both of these studies, the diets themselves didn't really cause, uh, they didn't cause muscle fat, or I'm sorry, they didn't cause losses of lean body mass. There was fat loss. So the utility of a diet break, I think increases in value when the diet itself is more extreme and when it can, I guess, for lack of a better word, when it can help fix problems that a diet is causing. And as an example, if a diet's pretty aggressive, I think a diet break is more likely to be beneficial. Or if a diet is long in duration, you have an extended period of time when you plan on being in a caloric deficit, a diet break is more likely to be beneficial in that case. And according to the research, even if it's not beneficial, it's not going to cause fat gain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point to emphasize of that. If you are reverting back to maintenance, you know, by definition, you shouldn't be putting on more uh, fat. And that's um, something it's a useful tool for bodybuilders to understand to, to know where maintenance is and to be able to, you know, come back to that. 
that uh, base point where they can pull back in a sort of diet break scenario. Yeah, let, let me add one, one context to that. In theory, let, if you've been dieting for 12 weeks, if your resting energy expenditure has decreased, in theory, if you go back to maintenance calories from before your diet started, theoretically, now what used to be maintenance technically could be a slight surplus because you've mm -hmm. been dieting for a while. And I don't, again, no, no research has identified it as that, but we can all appreciate that might be yeah. what's happening. And even if you are in a slight surplus, again, based on the fact that your metabolic rate has adapted or you know you have this conservation of energy it's still the, the research is still has the same outcomes it's still not harmful and in fact um something that i also want to say whenever a diet break has worked in the scientific literature mm -hmm. the calories are always back to maintenance calories or even a slight surplus so this is where again i i i, I have this broad context if you're trying to lose fat lose fat if you're going to use a diet break use the intention of a diet break, which is to get out of a deficit. A lot of people, in my opinion, they think, well, I'm going to increase my calories, but yet they really don't want to. So they, they try to cheat the system. It's important if you're going to be on a diet break, get your calories back to maintenance levels. Don't continue to be in a caloric deficit because that could, you're, you're basically short circuiting the potential for that diet break to be valid and effective for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point for sure. And people need to understand that, yeah, that the these benefits come from actually pulling your body out of the fire. Yeah, that's a great way, way to put it. So yeah, so let's say we were talking about, you know, someone who's pretty serious, like a contest prep bodybuilder, and they're in a in a pretty extreme sort of diet scenario, and they want to use diet breaks, what would be your preferred way of setting them up? In terms of like, how often and how long? Yes. So I would follow a strategy that is not backed by research at all. <laughs> so all of the research, every single one, they start planning at the beginning of the diet and they set a calendar based diet break. So they'll say, we're going to be in a deficit for three weeks. You're going to take a week off or you're going to be in a deficit for two weeks. We'll take two weeks off. That is not. Now, again, that's very important for research but it's not individualized. So the, my approach would be, I would work with an individual athlete and I would say, I would, I would have a team-based decision approach. I would say, okay, we are going to implement a diet break strategy if the client agreed to this. And if they do, it's say, okay, now we're gonna agree. We're gonna do this when your body is no longer responding to the caloric deficit that you're going to be in. So what we have to agree on now is, how are we defining no longer responding to the diet or no longer responding to the plan? Because it can be very, you can jump the gun or you can stay too long. So I want to have 100% buy-in with my athlete on this, this decision of we're, I'm not responding. We now have a plan to implement this diet break. And the reason I think that's important and the research attests to this Diet breaks need to be prescribed. Again, that's another caveat. When they work, they're prescribed. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to contrast that with something like something like I might do. 
Mm -hmm. I'm dieting and I, I, I have a bad weekend. That bad weekend turns into a bad Monday and Tuesday. And then I tell myself, oh, well, I'm just going to count this as a diet break because that's coming out, uh, you know, just increasing my calories. Research doesn't support that because mm -hmm. that wasn't prescribed. I failed. I'm a failure in, in a sense that I didn't execute my plan. And that goes against prescribing when you will do the diet break. Because if you prescribe it, you still have this. And again, I'm not an exercise psychologist, so forgive me um, for going outside my area of expertise. But you still have a success mindset. You, you are increasing your calories because you're following the plan. So again, setting this up with an athlete, let's decide when we're going to do this. And we're gonna base that on when we're no longer responding to the current deficit. And I would just put on the table to start, if we have two consecutive weeks of no fat loss with our current plan, our current deficit, that is our definition of no longer responding, and that's the time that we're going to institute our diet break. And again, I would have a conversation, whether that be one week or two weeks. Of course, show day, competition day is going to have a huge implication on the lengths of these diet breaks mm -hmm. and how much, of a, how much of a role they can have in our contest prep strategy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really good way of thinking about it, where you kind of use it as needed, and that's... Yeah, that's it's cool what you meant what you said about you know the the importance of having it planned where you know it kind of suggests that there's there are more aspects to it than just the the numbers like the calories yeah. and macros. Yeah, and you think about this: if somebody's on a uh, caloric deficit and they're losing you know a pound and a half of fat per week, and it now it's time for a def or a diet break, I think that's foolish. What we're doing is working. They're in the fat loss plan. So I don't, there's no reason to fix, again, diet breaks tend to, if they're gonna be, they're gonna have utility. They're gonna quote unquote, fix something that's not working. At that point, you're fixing something that's not broke. So don't fall in love with diet breaks just because they happen to be popular right now. You know, as you know, give it three years and nobody will be doing diet breaks. <laughs> um, especially again, um, the, the study out of Australia my study will be published later this year. The narrative will be that they are worthless. That will be what people are saying. And I, I, I firmly I would guard against that. They're not worthless. Did the diets cause metabolic adaptation? Did the diets induce negative consequences in these subjects? The answer in both studies is no. Mm. The, the diet break isn't, isn't going to have utility in that case. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a good sort of caveat to point out in the research moving on yeah i want to also talk about refeeds so how would you define refeeds very similar to a diet break except diet breaks we defined as at least seven days one week two weeks sometimes more of increasing calories back to maintenance a refeed is the same concept instead of weeks we're going to measure it in days and typically it's going to be one day per week, possibly two, maybe three. Um, I don't think I've ever seen anything more than three days, but it's the same exact concept. Stop dieting for one or two days per week. Increase your calories back to maintenance calories so that you're out of the deficit or out of the fire, as you said. Mm -hmm. And then you just go right back to your, to your caloric deficit. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And then what is the research saying on, on the use of them right now in fat loss? So uh, we published a study, I think it was 2020. Uh, I think it was COVID year. And I think it was the first study that was ever done in, in resistance trained individuals with diet refeeds. And what we, what we reported, what we observed was, uh, I was surprised. I, 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 let me explain the, the study design and I'll explain mm-hmm. what I expected to happen. So we had two groups of resistance trained males and females. We put both of them on a seven week caloric deficit. The deficit was on average 25% per week. The one group we said, you're gonna go on a 25% caloric restriction every day for seven straight weeks. You're never gonna take a break from dieting. And, and, and both groups had to eat, I think it was 1.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. Mm. So one group, it was continuous, just seven straight weeks, 25% every day. The other group, we said, you are going to do a diet refeed two days per week. And we said, every weekend, you're going to increase your calories back to maintenance levels. And what that meant was instead of a 25% caloric deficit Monday through Friday, they actually had to be more aggressive. They had to do a 35% caloric deficit Monday through Friday because on the weekends, they went to 100% of their calories. And when you average that out, it happened to be 25% just like the other group, but you have this spike for two days. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing we told them was they were gonna have to increase their calories all in the form of carbohydrate during uh, on the weekend. So keep protein high, our 1.8 grams per kg, but the calories where you're gonna go back up to maintenance, we want them to come from carbs. Mm-hmm. At the end of the seven week study, the group with the diet refeeds that was uh, increasing their calories two days per week they were able to maintain their dry fat free mass significantly better than the other group. And basically what that means is they, when you account for body water that was lost, they retain significantly more of their, of their muscle mass, their dry fat free mass. They lost a little bit. It was not a significant amount, whereas the other group did lose a significant amount. The other variable that was positive was they also maintained their resting energy expenditure significantly better. And that's not surprising because we know we have this direct relationship of muscle mass and metabolic rate. So if you maintain more lean body mass, you're likely going to maintain your metabolic rate, which is what they did. Mm -hmm. Uh, The one thing was there was no differences in fat loss. So increasing calories or spiking calories two days per week didn't really have any impact on the amount of body fat that was lost. The, the findings were in favor of the fat-free mass compartment. And that surprised me. I thought, you know, setting out to do the study, this, I, I wouldn't expect there to be any differences. Protein was the same. The overall weekly caloric deficit was the same. So mm-hmm. I, I was surprised. And we hypothesized in our, in our discussion, well, what may have caused this? Mm-hmm. And there are two, two things. One globally would be if you never come out of a deficit for seven weeks, I, I would describe that as you're in a catabolic state for seven straight weeks. But in the other group, as they went to maintenance calories for two days every week, that's at least two days or that's two days every week where they're not in a catabolic state. They are possibly in a slight caloric surplus, as we discussed earlier. 
Mm-hmm. So that, that maybe that helped maintain muscle mass more. The other uh, mechanism, and I say this is more specific to their physiology, because we had them increase all of their calories from carbs, we know that carbohydrates will increase insulin secretion and insulin is an anti-catabolic hormone. So we have, we have other research to, that demonstrates when insulin levels are higher, you lower the rate or the, the extent to which muscle protein breakdown occurs. Mm-hmm. So we didn't measure muscle protein breakdown and we didn't measure insulin. So this is just, we are hypothesizing that these two days on the weekend increased insulin because of the increased carbohydrate levels. And that suppressed the rates of muscle protein breakdown, which caused a better retention of overall dry fat-free mass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think those are those are cool results. And like the retention of fat free mass is obviously really uh, important for bodybuilders. Um, yeah, so taking everything, the evidence we have into consideration, what would be your way of implementing refeeds in terms of how many days and how often? Um, I definitely love it for a lifestyle bodybuilder. So again, that kind of that audience, um, where they might not step on stage. So let, let me address them first. Research suggests, as does my own life, people eat more on the weekends. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to live a lifestyle of being relatively lean, I would encourage you set up your, your lifestyle lifting and nutrition plan to mimic this. Lower food Monday through, lower calories Monday through Friday, higher on the weekend. It matches what most people do. And as we know, if you can not make abrupt changes to your normal plans, you're more likely to adhere to that plan. In terms of bodybuilders, we, we have zero data in competitive bodybuilders on this, but our study was in resistance trained people. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm, I'm gonna suggest, I, I, I think the mechanism of action was the insulin response and, and suppressing rates of muscle protein breakdown. Uh, I, I might suggest that this just be part of a bodybuilder's contest prep going into a show. So I'm saying if contest prep is 16 weeks, I would consider having 16 weekends or 16 back-to-back days of higher carbs, getting them out of that deficit and seeing how that goes and using that as a personal experiment for that client for that show. And then comparing that to what happened in the past or what they would do next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way of going about it, right? Because from the research we have, it looks like it at least won't be detrimental as long as you are only going to maintenance and not really overshooting. And yeah, I really like the idea of nonlinear dieting just because of the flexibility, as you said, it gives to someone who wants to maintain their lifestyle. Where for me, like, yeah, when I'm in, like I'm in contest prep right now, I'll, I'll do the, the 48 hour refeeds on weekends. And it really allows me the freedom to basically preserve my like social life and, you know, yes. see family and friends. And I think that's one of the problems with uh, that people run into in contest prep is it becomes very isolating where they're just like, oh no, like they, you know, I can't go out or I can't see people. And if you have, you know, Saturday and Sunday back at maintenance, you can, you can very easily, you know, schedule in, you know, dinners and family things or whatever, and, and still hit your macros. Now, have you in the past, have you used this, this particular strategy in the past, or is this the first contest prep where you're doing this? Yeah, no, I used it for my last contest prep with 
excellent results. Um, I, I was, yeah, I, I basically held the 48 hour refeed uh, strategy all the way through from the beginning. I really, really like it. I actually even use it when I'm just mini cutting. And I definitely found that there are some other, you know, indirect benefits that bodybuilders get from it, where one of the, the things is, you know, practice of maintenance, where you get really good at coming back to maintenance and knowing what that feels like, which I think can have some indirect benefits later on when you're transitioning out of the diet. So when people, people need to understand where their maintenance is so that they don't rebound a lot. And the other thing is the ancillary benefit for bodybuilders is that you get a good sense of what your body looks like with glycogen on board with yes. and without. So with, that has huge implication for peaking. So like when it, when it comes time for peaking, I know very well what my body will look like after, you know, two days of 450 grams of carbs in a row, and then how it looks like day one and day two, even after the refeed as, as the, the carbs sort of hit the system. So I think there, there are some indirect benefits that I actually, I, I feel like those are the main, the, the even bigger reasons why I like using them. That's, you make some good points. So for you, it is your base strategy. It's almost like that's your core plan. And maybe you'll adjust some things around the periphery. But the other thing is, yeah, you're practicing peaking every week. And everything we know about optimal performance is you, you practice for the game. Like you, and that's what you're doing as a bodybuilder. So I, that's another, that's a huge benefit that I didn't even consider for a competitive athlete. Because like you said, you get, you just get to body gets used to it, you know how your body looks, probably even dial it into the morning or afternoon or evening, depending on um, how many times you can do this. Yeah. And the other thing I found is that I really like using it on, um, on the weekends where I can actually also schedule in heavier workouts on those days. Mm -hmm. So especially if, yeah, like if you, I've trained four days a week, so I can put, you know, quite a bit of my training on those refeed days, which I find helps me maintain performance as well. Yeah, it's a good point. It's as, as you know, it's not fun <laughs> doing legs on a low, <laughs> low carb or low calorie day, even mentally. Oh, that's the other thing. I just, just to be able to look forward to the weekend and having some additional food, that's huge. I mean, I think it really helps with it. I, I don't have research to speak on, but intuitively, I think it would have to help with adherence or at least your outlook. Yeah, exactly. It gives people something to look forward to. Yeah, in terms of just the sort of discussion of metabolic adaptation and fat loss, you know, I think this is something where there's a lot of hype on the internet about, you know, various fad strategies for boosting your metabolism. Are there any other things that, you know, bodybuilders or just people trying to lose weight should be thinking about in order to preserve, keep up their metabolism as much as possible when dieting? Uh, you know, besides, I'm I assume, training and you know, getting enough sleep. Yeah, I mean, and protein, uh, protein will preserve fat-free mass and that, that will preserve resting metabolic rate. Um, yeah, I, I can't think of any, I mean, calories, like I said, your, your resting energy expender is going to follow your calories generally. So if you're, if you're on poverty calories, there's not much you can do. Uh, pro, higher protein can only do so much. If you're eating 600 calories per day, you're not going to maintain your resting energy expender, even if it's all protein. Uh, one of the dietary supplements that, that does wonders is, you know, boring caffeine. Caffeine mm. is, yes, um, just in the last few weeks spent, um, I've been 
doing an extreme deep dive on caffeine and it's 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 clockwork it, it will increase and again unless you have an outlier somebody who's not responsive at all but that increases metabolic rate and it doesn't matter if you're caffeine naive or if you're an habitual caffeine consumer hmm. you don't lose the ability to to upregulate your metabolic rate now again that is acute that's um that's not going to you know you take it monday and your metabolic rate still elevated thursday but on a day-to-day -day basis um and I would just broaden this a little bit. If I'm in a fat loss phase and I'm a competitive bodybuilder, caffeine is, is, um, it's powerful. It's, <laughs> there's it, just the energy. Let me look, let me put it in this perspective, the energy balance equation, which we have two sides, um, your, your energy intake, how much food you're consuming, that's one half. And then your energy expenditure, which we can break down into resting energy expenditure, your, your, exercise energy expenditure, your NEAT or your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, then you'll have your thermic effect of food. Caffeine improves almost every single variable of the energy balance equation. Now, mm -hmm. the energy intake side, it's not strong. Uh, I would say there's a moderate appetite suppressing effect where you, where you tend to in, um, ingest less food, but that's moderate. But on the other side of the equation, everything but NEAT, there's research to support. So it increases the thermic effect of food, it increases resting energy expenditure, and it increases the uh, exercise energy expenditure. So that's, that's just the broad-based um, influence that caffeine has. Then you look at what does it do to the, the body, in, you know, non-metabolically. Well, it elevates lipolysis, it increases epinephrine levels, it increases free fatty acid levels. So we know that it, 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 it's really a fat liberating, so it breaks down the fat cells. And because your energy expenditure goes up, it's burning that fat. So for whatever reason, caffeine doesn't seem to be sexy. And I don't know why, uh, because on paper, it's got everything you want. Now, mm. I would love to ask your opinion on this. I have heard people suggest chronic caffeine will ca um, cause adrenal fatigue so or maybe elevate cortisol. So I have heard that argument and, I, and I'm not, I have not looked into that enough. Um, and I think those are always anecdotal claims. Like, um, but do, do, what, what are your thoughts on caffeine? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think that, I think the caffeine thing is, very you know underrated and hasn't been talked about enough i think in terms of the adrenal argument i i'm i'm not very well in tune with this kind of literature but i wouldn't expect there to be an issue if people are you know like chronic coffee drinkers or whatever i wouldn't expect it to be much of a problem but i do see the issue of like just your body being tolerant to the dose and not necessarily getting the effects out of it so this is something yeah, that like, I think needs, I, I love talking about this stuff because so I like using a caffeine cycling approach for dieting, which I actually think that, yeah, caffeine is one of the very few supplements that I think are really useful for bodybuilders where yeah. I will, I'm cold Turkey mo like for most of the time. So I don't take caffeine maybe only like once or twice a week during the off season. So my body's very sensitive to it. And then when I start dieting, I'll just, I'll start bringing it in. 
And then every few weeks when I feel that I'm becoming tolerant to the dose, I'll actually ramp it up a little bit so that I continue getting that boost, uh, which I find really helps with, with training, uh, just having, keeping that energy up as, as well as just overall morale and energy throughout the day. So yeah, and I think that it can be a powerful tool. So I'll actually, I'll sort of, you know, boost it by 50 or hundred milligram increments every month or so during contest prep. And, and then afterwards, obviously, then I'll eventually have to go off it again. So you, you, you do want to have periods where you're away from caffeine to get that effect from it. But yeah, I'm, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on yeah, how you would kind of implement in terms of like dosing. Well, I, I, I appreciate what you said about, uh, I don't know the word you use, but layering or um, you yeah, bring cycling. it. Yeah, cycling. Um, just one thought. I've, again, I've done a deep dive on caffeine, um, <laughs> it's an insane amount of time the last few months. Uh, when you look for research on caffeine and fat loss, like weight loss studies, they're like, they are non-existent. If you look for caffeine plus green tea, caffeine plus ephedrine, you'll find 50 studies. You'll always find caffeine with these other things that I think aren't effective. Mm. And that's where all of the research is. Mm. But why, why don't we, why is there not just caffeine itself and weight loss studies? I don't know. I mean, I found three studies. But the antioxidants. <laughs> yeah, not that there's not other benefits. I'm just saying, when I see a thermogenic supplement or a fat loss supplement, I say, I look at, okay, caffeine, that works. The other 19 ingredients? Yeah. Eh, maybe, maybe not. That's just how I interpret, that, that's how I look at it. Um, but back to this cycling, um, I, I, I have the same, um, same mindset. And again, I'm 20 years out from when I body, when, when I was, uh, when I did my show, I only did one show in my life, but I really like this concept of kind of cycling different stimuli to the body fat process. So where this is very evident is Yohimbine. Are, are you familiar with Yohimbine? Not very. So that's um, a little bit more side effects than caffeine. It comes from the uh, Yohimba um, tree bark. It's basically you extract it from the bark. But just real quick, where this concept comes from, uh, they gave obese females Yohimbi or a placebo. And this was after two weeks of dieting, one group got a placebo. And then after two weeks of dieting, they were given Yohimbi. And Yohimbi added to the benefit of dieting. So it, almost, it, it lends itself to suggest if you introduce it after the diet has started, let's say after a few weeks, you still get the continual effect of a diet that you wouldn't get otherwise. Hmm. So I like this, um, th this, I guess I'll call it a tiered approach. So start with a caloric deficit, mm -hmm. let's say for a bodybuilder. Let's just say, let's just say, let's make this easy. 16 week contest prep, as an example, they're going to be in a caloric deficit for all 16 weeks because they're stepping on stage. So they're never not going to be in a caloric deficit. But after four weeks, let's go ahead and introduce caffeine. So now caffeine is going to be part of the plan at week 12. Now at week eight, as this is after eight weeks of dieting, four weeks of caffeine. Now let's introduce aerobic exercise or elevated cardio. Now they'll do that. Then at four weeks, you can now introduce, I would just say Yohimbine or something else. 
because you keep stacking these new stimuli on top of each other so that the body has this new stimulus to keep losing fat. So I love that approach for, for, for um, fat loss. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> it's so weird. I feel like you're just describing my prep plan. Like, you know, I, I actually have a document where I have, you know, my weeks, we number weeks out, and then I have, you know, introduce caffeine at week, like 10, I think. Yeah. And then, you know, cardio comes a bit later or like, I like holding off on cardio as long as possible. Ah. Yeah, exactly. The tiered approach or like the way I like to see it is, you know, you have these tools in your tool belt or the weapons in your, in your, in your backpack, and uh, you kind of pull them out at different times. And, it's uh, it's actually pretty um, motivating, actually, and reassuring to know that you have like another card up your sleeve. Yeah, that's a great point. Just even, yeah, I didn't even think, again, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't think about it, but that makes sense. It's like, yes, now I get to look forward to this. Um, and cardio, that's another thing. Cardio gets so much hate for fat loss. The, the I don't, if you look at that data, and I'll tell you what, where the problem is, there is plenty of studies that have used, and again, these aren't bodybuilders. Um, these are in overweight or obese people, but they give them these cardio programs, aerobic programs for 10 weeks, 16 weeks. And at the end of the study, there's no weight loss. So mm -hmm. the conclusion is, yep, cardio, it's, it's worthless. Doesn't Obviously, we know that has all the health benefits, but for, for weight loss, the, the narrative is, well, it's not causing weight loss. But in all of those studies, when, they, when you look at the studies that actually looked at the compartments of body composition, they always lose fat. And, and most times they're actually gaining some fat-free mass. Now these are in sedentary populations to start. So uh, for a, again, this is where I, I like to tell people, if you're gonna be in a fat loss phase, embrace it. And I think cardio should be a part of that for most people. Now, if you don't need it and you hate it, like I don't like cardio, but it, it, and, and if you're dropping fat and you don't need it, but if you need a fat loss stimulus, cardio is going to be very powerful, very powerful. Um, I'll say this in females, in the case study literature, I'm referring to five studies, they don't lose muscle mass when dieting and, and adding in cardio. Males do. Um, and we can talk about maybe why do males lose muscle mass. So the, the narrative also that cardio is causing these masses of massive amounts of muscle loss. That's not true. Um, it's not true in females at all. And in males, it's true, but it's also true in the males who don't do cardio in, from the case study literature, which is the only data we have in contest prep bodybuilders over, you know, that, that actually measures this over time. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's really interesting how, you know, you have, a lot of these sort of techniques and uh, it'll be really interesting as we see more research coming out I think uh, I wanted to yeah go into a couple of just touching on a few specific scenarios first of all with protein I know we were talking off air that you've been you've, you've been involved with some research in terms of protein and dieting there's some debate in the community about whether you need to increase protein when you're in a deficit so like I think in general for hypertrophy it's it's pretty standard that you'd say recommend around like 1.8 to 2.2 grams uh, per kilo of body weight uh, per day in terms of protein. Do you recommend people increase that further when they're in a deficit? Uh, well, let, let me start with as a percentage of calories, it's going to go up if you don't decrease. Mm -hmm. 
So my my first advice is don't decrease it. So yep. we're never going to decrease it. Um, I I would have to say I'm going to make that individual. If somebody's coming to me with you know they're already at 2.6 grams per kg, do, do they really need to increase yeah. more? Um, I would say not. So I'm going to take the cop out and say it depends on the individual. I would suggest that increasing it is never going to cause a harm. And if, if there's going to be anything, it will be benefit. And that benefit will be in the form of a loss of body fat and a greater retention of muscle mass. Uh, let me add to that. If you can think of like a sigmoid shape where you have, if you increase your protein, when you get to about 1.6 grams per kg, you're getting most of the benefit that you're going to get from a muscle tissue uh, parameter Mm -hmm. from, 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 from the protein. If you go higher than 1.6, you get up to two or 2.4, the gains become less and the benefits become less and less and less, the more and more you get. But I believe there is still a benefit but it never reaches the, the level of statistical significance in the scientific literature, which is why we have this narrative, oh, more than 1.6 isn't better. Well, the, the, the titration studies where they give on a per meal basis, where they give you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, or 80 grams of protein yeah. per meal and they measure muscle protein synthesis. Yeah, you don't get a statistically significant improvement in muscle protein synthesis from 20 to 40 or from um, 40 to 60. But if you look at the data, it's still a benefit. And if you had more subjects, that would be a statistically significant impact. So the effect sizes are better. And it's just, I think the best way for me to phrase it is, I think you get a benefit from more protein, but the benefit becomes less and less with added as you add more and more protein. So I hope that addressed your, your question. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. It's really cool to hear, you know, you'd have to, you have to have an eye for the research and actually have looked at the data to make a statement like that. Right. Where I think that a lot of people you'll see like the little memes or squares on Instagram that says like 1.6 grams, like is all you need. And then, but, but when you actually dig into the, you know, actual results, you might start to see these little sort of maybe trends, not necessarily statistically significant results and in the context of these smaller studies on on dieting individuals we might not have enough information yet yeah and let me add to that i'm known as a protein guy like i have daughters and and i i make sure that they get protein so i um i'm i'm again people think of me oh he's a protein guy i don't want to be a protein guy (laughs) i have to buy protein shakes um, I eat protein bars. They're not cheap. Um, that's not natural food. It's effort for me to get a, I try to aim for a gram of protein per pound of body weight or 2.2 grams per kg. I don't want that to be the case. Like I would be more than happy if the benefit came from carbs mm-hmm. because it's a hard sell to protein. And again, we have outliers. There are some people who just eat tons of protein, but that's, you know, that's, you know, probably 10% of the bodybuilding world who don't have to strive. So yes, I'm a protein guy, but not, not by, I mean, not by love. <laughs> it's just my, it's the, my analysis of the data. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's expensive. Yeah. So, and it's expensive. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so another special scenario is uh, protein sparing modified fasts. This is something that gets talked about quite a bit. Um, what are your thoughts on using them in, say, bodybuilders? 
Well, it's, um, can you, I'm going to ask you, define what that is just to make sure that I'm responding to your question. So if you were to define a protein sparing modified fast, how would you define that? Yeah, I think the idea would be that you would drastically reduce, you know, calories while basically keeping, keeping your protein, but taking away almost everything else. And, you know, this, uh, people might use different strategies, but almost, almost like the opposite of a refeed where like, you might have a couple days where you're just kind of like digging or, yeah. you know, people call it hell week or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I think if you're going to drastically reduce your calories, if you're going to be in a modified fast, then that's the way I would do it. I would have almost all of my calories coming from protein. Now, should you eat vegetables? Yeah. Should you get your micronutrients? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to cover all that stuff, but yeah, if, if I'm going to eat, if I'm going to eat a thousand calories per day and my goal is to maintain as much muscle as I can and to maintain my metabolic rate as best I can, I'm going to try to get 250, as close to 250 grand. I'm going to maximize my protein in that scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, yeah, like, I guess, do you have any thoughts on whether that would be, you know, detrimental, I guess? Ooh, or... uh, yeah, I think, um, I think it's the best approach if you're going to do that, but I wouldn't do that because I think you're, you're going to lose muscle mass. Um, if your calories get too low, yeah, there's only so much that a high protein will do. There's only so much that resistance training will do. So it would not be my approach, but it is the best approach if calories get so low that most of the calories come from protein. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, it's kind of like if you're boxed into that corner. One last scenario I wanted to talk about was sort of the, I, the people talk about damaging your metabolism or the idea of that, you know, if someone drops their calories really, really low too quickly, that they could get into a scenario where they still have a significant amount of fat to lose but their calories are really low. What are your thoughts on that kind of scenario? Huh, that's, that's controversial. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I have thoughts. Uh, <laughs> I, I think for, so if somebody says, let's just say they claim that they're eating very few calories yeah. and they're just not losing any weight or any body fat. The, the data would suggest that people they underreport what they're eating. Mm. So I'm going to I'm going to put 90% of the population okay. into not believing them. Hey, you say you're only eating 1200 calories, but I don't believe that. So, and again, the literature is pretty clear on that. But where the literature is lacking is in bodybuilders, people who are tracking macros. So if I get somebody like that, an experienced macro tracking, highly fitness, uh, high fitness enthusiast person, and they say, I'm not losing fat and I know I'm only eating X amount of calories. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to just say, oh, you're, you're underreporting. I, I would believe that person. Now, again, I think that's a small proportion of the population. The next question is, well, what do we do in that situation? <laughs> I don't know. That's tough. Uh, I don't know what to do. I, I, I think that's a point where I would want to get blood work and just, okay, is thyroid suppressed or 
is is cortisol out of you know is it is it really high um but yeah so i'm at a loss to help that but i'm also not going to deny that it there's a lot of people by the way in my that i've seen in the evidence-based space that just do not believe that can happen and i'm not one of them i think it can i think you can not respond to a diet even if you're in a caloric deficit i think it's rare and i don't have an answer as to how to address it but i do think it's it happens mm -hmm. yeah no it was, yeah it's just something that kind of came to mind and uh yeah i wasn't too certain about um how to fix those kinds of things either but uh yeah it's definitely something where you as you mentioned you you want to make sure that their general health is okay as well so yeah, I think wrapping up here, I think this has been a really enlightening discussion and lots of fun topics have been discussed. Uh, in terms of your own uh, work, I know you mentioned that you have a guidebook. Could you tell us about it? Yeah, so I partnered with Clean Health Fitness Institute. That's an Australian-based company. And in this guidebook is essentially, it's an, it's an e-book, but it also has a lot of video links. And it's essentially a lot of what we talked about here all of my philosophies that I've formed on how to live a lean lifestyle. So it helps people optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle. So we, uh, half the book is on nutrition. So a high protein lifestyle, um, implementing diet breaks, diet refeeds, fat loss phases. The other half is all about resistance training. So how that should form the foundation of your fitness lifestyle. And I talk about, I call the, you know, the, I call it leaf, um, but it's load, like how heavy or light should you lift your effort? Some people would refer to that as intensity. Um, a L E A. Uh, I forget what the A is intensity, um, frequency. Oh, I'm out uh, volume. What's your training volume. So how much volume should you do? And then frequency, how many days per week? So I, I kind of, again, I um, bring in all of the science and it is what it's informed me on coming up with a lifestyle plan to not step on stage, but so that you could look like you could step on stage if you wanted to. That's great. And yeah, so for anyone who wants to turn over a new leaf in 2022. Yes. Oh, I need to say, if anybody's interested in on my Instagram, um, just go to the link in my bio. It, it's, it will take you right to the sales page. And I guess, can I, can I say what my Instagram? Yeah, absolutely. It's at Bill Campbell PhD. And I do a lot of um, questions about exercise, nutrition, dietary supplements. But if you're interested in purchasing the book, and thank you for letting me say this, just go to the link in my Instagram bio. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, so I'll definitely link that uh, below. Uh, any other places where people can find you? No, that's, that's all. That's okay, where I'm yeah, at yeah. right Instagram. now. Yeah. Instagram is the hub. So yeah, I'll definitely uh, link that in the description and thanks again for being on the show. Yeah. Thank you very much for, for the invitation. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram for more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube and we'll see you next time.